the Jodcast, The Eagle Has Landed, with Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien and Neil Young. The Jodcast, July Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the July Extra Edition of The Jodcast, and joining me this time is Neil Young. Hi Neil. Hello everyone. And it's a very special one. We're a bit late this time, and it's because of the anniversary of the moon landings. Yes, very interesting times has passed. So now it's 40 years since uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And which Apollo mission was it? Apollo 11. Apollo 11, yeah. I have to say that neither Neil or I were actually alive at the time. So I've actually been reliving some of the Apollo 11 landings um, by listening to the 40-year delayed radio from NASA. Mm. as Apollo 11 radio. Which is quite good. You get to hear, I heard the launch yesterday. It's quite exciting. No one's ever been to the moon um, in my lifetime. Mm, it's true. But there, there were about what, 10 missions to the moon, weren't they? Or at least uh, quite a few more. Well, those Apollo 17 was the last mission Because we played golf on the moon. We've uh, bounced on the moon, moonwalks, and uh, what else is there? I and think... we've collected a huge amount of rock samples, which yes. is perhaps the most important from a science point of view. And we've also done um, tests of uh, Galilean theory. So we've also uh, tested the flight of a feather and a rock on the moon to was see... A hammer. Oh, was it a hammer? I think it was a feather and a hammer. A feather and a hammer, or some other object, a lot heavier than a feather anyway, to see which one landed first. And in a vacuum, of course, or due to Galilean theory, we predict that they're going to land at the same rate. And That's because they experienced the same acceleration due to gravity. And they did, which is quite nice. Yes, that was a, a very neat experiment. And, of course, the Apollo astronauts left some corner cube reflectors on the surface of the moon, which mm. have been used later. So it's basically a corner of a cube made out of mirrors, and it's been used with laser ranging on the Earth to work out the distance to the moon by reflecting the, the laser light into the corner cube reflector. It gets reflected back and is picked up by telescopes, and you can work out the fact that the moon's moving away from us very, very slowly. Something like the rate of fingernail growth. Is how fast it's moving away from us. But that depends by person to person, right? Well, the average. <laughs> so as well as it being the anniversary of Apollo 11, something that I wasn't as aware of, anywhere near as aware of, was Luna 15, which was a Soviet spacecraft to the moon. It was an unmanned probe, but it was there at the same time as Apollo 11, which I, I hadn't been aware there were other spacecraft there orbiting the moon I at the time. I hadn't heard of that either, no. Tim O'Brien and some other people have been looking through the archives recently and they found some audio that was recorded in the control room at Jodrell Bank during the time of the Apollo 11 mission. And you can hear them tracking Luna 15 to see what it's doing and it even crashes into the moon during the Apollo 11 mission while the astronauts are there at the moon, which is is pretty exciting to hear and there's lots of... and. Lots of typical British understatement of, that was pretty exciting, wasn't it? Or something like that. Tell you how old chap, yes. <laughs> yep, that sort of thing. So, if you want to hear that audio, go to the Joddle Bank website. We'll put a, a link on the show notes. Hopefully it wasn't a close shave then, was it? I, I think there was quite a distance between them. I'm not entirely sure, but pretty exciting stuff. So go and have a listen to that audio. As I said, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Obviously, technology has come along quite a far way since then, so the majority of satellites which you put into orbit around the moon... Stay in orbit around the moon. <laughs> yeah, and for instance, there's the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and LCROSS. I can't remember exactly what LCROSS stands for as an acronym, but they're both um, currently observing the moon. Hopefully we'll get a lot of uh, interesting information out of the uh, next few years. In fact, we will, and there is a, um, a NASA announcement that at 2pm today as we record this, that 
LRO will be releasing images from orbit of the Apollo 11 landing site. So by the time you hear this, that will all be live and available for everyone, but we haven't seen it yet. So just log on to nasa.gov and uh, you'll be able to have a look at these nice, interesting pictures. Anyway, coming up on the show this time, we're going to have an interview with Sir Bernard Lovell about the Jordan Bank's involvement with the space race, and we'll get your questions answered in Ask an Astronomer. So let's go straight into that interview with Sir Bernard Lovell. We're here in uh, in Sir Bernard Lovell's office here at Jotrell Bank, and Sir Bernard's uh, kindly agreed to uh, tell us a little bit about how Jodrell was involved in the various space missions that eventually led to the landing of the Americans on the moon in July 1969. Uh, we ought to give the simple history that it had a very simple scientific beginning. Uh, after the publication of a report by Sagi, the Council of International Unions proposed the the the, the this being in the National Geographic Geophysical Year in nineteen fifty seven. Sagi accepted this and suggested that every effort be made to launch a, what we now call a satellite. Mm-hmm. President Eisenhower said they, they, they agreed and they were going to launch a satellite and a day later Nesmanov said the so were the Russians. Well um, everybody believed that the Americans, nobody believed the Russians. And the answer is, and I wonder if this is genuine, that Eisenhower made a fatal error by, by, by ordering that um, uh, the Americans would do this without any use of military technology and without any use of the Redstone rockets, um, which had been uh, developed by Werner von Braun for the army. He was heavily attacked, but he insisted that it would be entirely a civilian project. The finance of it was totally inadequate. And, um, I mean, the, the Russians, of course, had no inhibitions about that. And, and uh, they used, they used, as soon as Khrushchev, in, um, in August of 1957, uh, announced, it was in the New York Times, they had successfully tested an intercontinental missile against which there was no defense. I uh, I knew that this was the launching going to be used for launching the Sputnik. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all that secret. Mm. I, I was at a, also at a meeting in Colorado of Ursi, where Walter Hagen engaged with the with the American project, said that, that there would be delay, and he gave a long lecture to a crowded room about this small, so-called grapefruit satellite. And I said to him afterwards, I say, you know, Walter, you're going to lose the race. The Americans are about to launch a Sputnik. And his reply was, oh, nonsense. They have no idea how how to do this. Mm. The the Russians are going to launch a Sputnik. The Russians have no idea how to do Mm. this. Mm. The Americans were, were, were quite unaware. But when when they realized that um, uh, this was no lump of old iron (laughs) that one of the senators said. They they really turned to and put the money into science and technology. And then, of course, the moon race was fascinating. So that was how it began. That was the... Really, at the outset, it was a scientific... Then, then Mm. after the Russians got ahead... Not only with uh, with their first Sputnik, but with the dog Laika and with Gagarin. It was then that uh, Kennedy made his famous announcement 
that uh, within the next decade mm. they would aim to put a man on the moon and mm. return him safely to mm. Earth. And that started the race. Mm. And there's no doubt it was a race because... And I, 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 it just happened that I had fairly high-level contacts both with the Russians and the Americans. And I was always surprised at the caution of the Russians and the certainty of the Americans, <laughs> certainty about everything. Mm. You know, they were not worried about radiation. And um, particularly, I used to say a lot with him, the man who was in detail charge of this program. Uh, he said, oh, he said, we don't need to worry about things later. Every operation is doubled. Mm-hmm. And then he added, except the liftoff from the moon. And he said, I must admit, if, the, if they press the button and nothing happens, there's nothing more we could do. Soviets, on the other hand, were extremely cautious in reply to any question when were they going to attempt to get a man on the moon. We will send a Russian to the moon when we are absolutely certain of getting him back safely. Hmm. So how did you, uh, how did you first uh, hear about the the Americans' plans to send a rocket to the moon? Um, I mean, the Americans, uh, the Project A we were talking about mm. was, was sending, just sending a rocket to the moon, Yeah, uh, which, the, which the Soviets had already accomplished in uh, September 1959, I think. Mm, yes. That was, uh, that and was that, a... that was a staggering feat for that, for that age, yeah. I hear that the uh, the Americans uh, came to ask you specifically about about perhaps using the telescope here at Jodrell Bank to track some of these early rockets, these early Project Able rockets. Themselves. Yeah, I mean the the, the 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 Star General, who came in great secrecy to see me. He said, "We want your help. We're going to send a a, a rocket to the moon," and I said, "You can't possibly." He said, on the other hand, we've just tested uh, Project Able. Hmm. Um, and I said, well, what do you want us to do? He said, well, we can send a rocket at the moment. We can't track it. We want you to track it. That's how that happened. Hmm. And the, and the Russian, you mentioned uh, the Russian, uh, it was Lunik 2, I think, that was in September of 1959. That was the first yeah. rocket to ever, ever reach the moon, um, having been the first people to put... A satellite into space, and the first people to put a dog into space, and so on. They were the first people first to hit the moon. Man in space, <laughs> absolutely. They were the, yeah. they were first all the way through. I mean, what was Jodrell's involved? How, how did Jodrell get involved in in Lunik Two? Was the did you receive signals here? I'll tell you exactly what happened. It was a Saturday, was a Saturday afternoon like this, and I was um, I was the captain of the. Of, of, of Chaffer Cricket Club. And um, suddenly, at lunchtime, the house telephone and the telephone from the controller rang. And they said, what are you going to do? Because the Americans were here, you see, in connection with party table. And I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to play cricket. So um, I and so I did play cricket that afternoon. But on the, on, when we finished cricket, I thought I'd, uh, I had phoned... J.G. Davis, and I said, look, with this extraordinary situation, um, I think we ought to go back to Jodrell and see if there's anything there. So we, I opened the um, door of the office, 
and there were yards and yards of what was then telex giving us amazingly the exact coordinates for Jodra Bank at which we could locate this probe. Mm -hmm. This is from the Russians? From the Russians, from Moscow. Mm. So we, we climbed up the telescope and were actually in the swing laboratory. Uh, I think Palmer had a, um, an observation on at the time and um, we retuned the receiver and got the probe without any difficulty. And then um, the next day was Sunday. Well, we acquired it as soon as it came by the horizon. We attracted all day. It's the crowds pressed and <laughs> right around us. About half past nine at night, I was sorry before that, it was J.G. Davis who had the brilliant inspiration of measuring the Doppler shift. Mm. And uh, so we were able to, we, so we knew exactly when the probe began to accelerate towards the moon. Mm. And this came at a most extraordinary time, just as the 10 o'clock news on the BBC was going out. <laughs> and uh, I think impact occurred two minutes past 10 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So we saw this, the, the rockets transmitting a signal at a particular frequency back yeah. to Earth. That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And, and yeah. you can, you can yeah. and the, measure its velocity. The, the, yeah. You'll find those curves. There's a nature paper yes. which uh, shows those curves. Mm. Now, it was simple. It was the first time it had been done. And mm -hmm. you know, this technique, it was a brilliant idea of Davis. And um, set the example for everything that has been done subsequently for, for, for that kind of work. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I think what was particularly important is that uh, there are many Americans who could not believe it, and they argued that the, the, the Soviets had put an alarm clock in. Mm. Well, w when we produced acceleration curves, you know, they, they, they had mm. no grounds for that mm. at all. This was an alarm clock to sort of cut the signal off at some yeah, instant, yeah, when, as if it had hit the moon, right? Yeah. I mean, I know that uh, you, you went on and uh, I think you received signals from... Uh, the first, again, the first Soviet mission, the first rocket to circle the moon and take photographs of, it, of, it, of its far side was actually just, just a month later, actually. Yeah. And, and Jodrell again picked up signals from, from, yeah. from that rocket, I believe. Yeah. But then I think you, you then went back, I mean, you sort of, the, the history of Jodrell's involvement in the space race seemed to be sort of working with both the Americans and, 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 and the Russians mm -hmm. at various points. And I think then the big, there was a big, uh, involvement in, uh, what had become the Pioneer missions originally, originally Project Able, so yeah. Pioneer uh, 5. Pioneer 5. Yeah. That was the story of Jodrell's involvement there. Yes, and the story of how that saved Jodrell. <laughs> Pioneer 5 was, a, was a, a, originally designed as a probe for Venus, mm. but um, I think in the end uh, it... Um, it, it, they, they gave that up, and mm. uh, we the signals... The power in the probe expired. I, I got the figure somewhere mm. when it was an enormous distance from Earth. The most exciting part of all of that, though, was sending the signal out from the telescope um, a few minutes after the probe had been launched from Cape Kennedy, mm -hmm. and this melt or fuse it bolts mm. holding the payload to the carrier rocket, and then that worked perfectly. So Jodrell Bank was actually controlling this rocket the Americans had launched yeah, from absolutely, yes. Kennedy. So when you, I mean, you mentioned intriguingly, you mentioned that 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 was the that was the the mission that saved Jodrell Bank. How how did that come about? 
Well, of course, it was headline news in all the newspapers. And uh, this control of the rocket, of the probe. I, well, we, did, we didn't have people like you then and press officers and so on. All the ruddy telephone calls came to mind. And the, the day after, I was absolutely fed up of answering the telephone. Hmm. But the, the secretary, I think it was Anthony Holland, said, said, look, um, there's another telephone call. You better take it. So I said, oh, put it through. And uh, a voice said, is that Professor Lovelace? I said, yes. Yeah. said, well, my name is Slingerly. I am Lord Nuffield's private secretary, and his lordship wishes to speak to you. So Lord Nuffield came on the telephone and said, how much money is owing on that telescope of yours? And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a bit confused. I said, I think it's about £80,000. <laughs> and he said, is that all? Um, I'll send you a cheque, pay it off. And I tried to thank him. <laughs> and he said, well, that's all right, my boy, you haven't done too badly. <laughs> So that, was, <laughs> that was the end of our, our, our many, many years of yeah. time. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, that, that was debt left over from a period yeah, three, yeah. four years earlier, yeah. you know, back, yeah, back when the telescope was being constructed. Amazing. Because, um, I mean, that wasn't, because, of course, doing these space missions wasn't the primary aim of the telescope, of course. This was, you know, it was a side issue in a way, wasn't yeah. it? Because it was doing, doing astronomy. So. Well, the, the interesting thing is that I think throughout the whole of that period, uh, the operational time of the telescope used on the space probes and so on was about 15%. Right. And the rest was, well, it was during that period that Palmer mm. made the measurements which led to the search, which was fundamental in the discovery of quasars. Yeah. Working our way forward in the story of getting getting people to the moon, I think the next, uh, one of the next big steps was uh, was to land a spacecraft on the moon. So... Uh, you know, we yeah. talked about the Russians hitting the moon with a with a rocket in uh, in in 1959, but but in 1966 they actually landed uh, Luna Nine or Lunik Nine on the surface of the moon and sent back pictures. And again, Jodrell had a had a had a major role there, didn't it? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that that night when uh, that those remarkable. pictures were received. The probe landed, and. Um, and then, 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 within a very short time, the signal started again, and uh, they they were very odd. And J.G. Davis, a flash of genius, he said, "Look, th those are those are signals, a picture facsimile signals. Let's ring up the, the one of the newspapers and see if we can borrow a machine." Which we did. So this was one of these early fax machines that was yeah. yeah. So with that, that was just plugged into the receiver and yeah. And out came a picture of the moon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, and but the, I, we, we were madly, wrongfully accused of of issuing these pictures before the Russians. Right. I couldn't help it. I right. mean, this happened the next day uh, when, when I, uh, coming out of the dark room, the whole, the whole place was crowded with reporters <laughs> and photographers. So they, they photographed, I mean, I walked through See them. See you carrying uh, the picture. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, the, the Russians were, were never were never annoyed. Black and Ra General Black and Raulov, who was in charge of the mission, when I subsequently met him, he was not annoyed at all that we'd published the photographs before the Russians. In fact, he said, our trouble is they have to go through, through so many ranks mm. and ranks, and that causes a delay. 
He said, but we were very angry with you because you published them with the wrong scale. <laughs> so what was the problem? The, why was the scale wrong? Well, because we did not know that the our, our, our uh, taxonomy machine uh, had a, a, a different thread from that of the Russians. Uh, different pitch of thread, isn't it? So, yeah. so it came at a different speed. Yeah. yeah. Ah, okay. So it was a bit... So st- our, our, our photographs published in Nature, mm. our show, show the... the so what what were really fairly rounded features rather yeah. peaked. They were a bit wrong aspect ratio. <laughs> well, that's the I mean that's amazing, isn't it? Eavesdropping on the on the transmission back to Earth and yeah. publishing the first ever pictures taken from the surface of the moon. Okay, I mean let's. Uh, I mean we should probably get to get to 1969 and uh, and have a chat about what happened during that when the when the when the when the, yeah. the Apollo astronauts were uh, were making their. Uh, Heading on the way to the moon. I mean, Jodrell didn't have a official role in in, in tracking these Apollo missions. No, did it? you see, all the vital um, events happened when the probe was below our horizon. When when Armstrong stepped onto the surface of the moon, we we only had that as broadcast by the Americans. Yeah, the moon was below our horizon. Yeah. But what did so? What did you actually? What what actually happened here then? When with with with, uh, with the Apollo Eleven mission, what what were you tracking at the time? Oh, we 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 followed the Apollo Eleven mission whenever it was above our horizon, hmm. um, and um, and and then of course the, the um, President of the United States had particularly asked the Soviets not to do anything to interfere with the landing and take-off operations, and would they please not uh, launch any probes to the moon, which they completely disregarded, and launched Lunar 15. And so we, we naturally, we, we had that in our sights all the time until, mm. the, until the remarkable afternoon. Mm. So tell me a little bit what happened on that, yeah. on that, on that afternoon. You see, originally they were going to stay in the in the landing module until the following day, mm. but then they sought permission and got it to step out pretty quickly. And this happened in the something like two or three a.m. our time. Mm. Even so, I, I, you know, I, I believe there are about five thousand people here. Mm. I mean, the, the whole of the fascination of then was when, when we realised that the Russians were trying to land their own probe. And furthermore, the um, indications from the doctor ship was that they were going to do this pretty close to where Armstrong and Aldrin were, mm. I think in the next valley. You know, damn nerve when you think of it. But just think of the political chaos, if anything had happened. So this was a, this was obviously an unmanned probe that the that the, the the Russians had sent, and was an unmanned it... probe, yeah, which what? was designed to return lunar soil automatically, which it did. A subsequent one did less than a year later, and if it had happened on the first occasion, they would have been first with, to have the lunar rocks on Earth. If the Apollo, even, even if Armstrong and Aldrin had successes, mm-hmm. and if Armstrong and Aldrin had failed. Yeah, and that was that disaster. Yeah. I mean, it would have been a, I guess, a demonstration of their, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
the, the sense of the decision to, to, to do it remote robotically rather than, yeah, than sending people, I guess, yeah. So that was the, so this spacecraft was supposed to land, collect a sample, take off again, come back to Earth. That's right. and, and, but what what did what did the jodrell signals show? In fact, happened. Well, the, on on the first probe, which you say was Luna fifteen, the signals just stopped. Um, we were observing the acceleration towards the lunar surface, and um, so we knew it was going to land. Mm. And uh, the calculations were it's going to land pretty well where Armstrong and Aldrin were. Mm. And then the signal suddenly stopped. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Now, what what went wrong, I do not know. They, mm. they, maybe something from our recorders to help, help them to decide. Right. Because you say, the, what, what, straight after the signal stopped, just after a recording finishes, I think, yeah. um, you got a phone call. Yeah. Who who was it who was on the phone? I think it was Keldish, the president of the academy, and um, so the Russian, the Russian academy. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and uh, I said we certainly would put them in the right place. Right, right. And the reply was, oh, no, 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 no. We we want them immediately. Our representative is already in an aeroplane. He will be landing at Manchester Airport at five fifteen or sometime like. Mm-hmm. Would you please make sure that your copy of our signals is with your representative and hand and ha- hand them to him. And I, I asked Commander Tosin, who was then our chief engineer, mm. to do this, which he did. Mm. And he went to Ringway and um, said, yes, this Russian came, Did, didn't even go through any formalities, just handed, uh, just handed them over to us. And did you hear any more about what... Anything about what happened to the tapes and what the... No. That was it? No, was just, no, no, yeah. the details of that. Mm. That's an amazing story. I mean, in, I, I, Incidentally, mm. going back to the... When I said that the telex message, when the first impact mm. in September 1959, mm. I found that quite extraordinary. And many, many years later, uh, the, the the Russian who was in charge of that program, the program he said... Uh, he said, oh, well, don't you realise we depended entirely on you to track that probe? <laughs> so they couldn't track it themselves at all? Couldn't track it themselves. But did, so they, they'd not, launched it in the right direction. They had this peculiar, <laughs> peculiar method of uh, making sure we tracked it. <laughs> <laughs> so they just headed it off in the right direction at the right speed and, uh, yeah. and relied on you to tell them it got there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I just listening to some of your interviews actually um, around the time just following the uh, the successful um, return of of uh, the Apollo 11 crew to Earth, I, I, you actually there was a quote you 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 said that if things go as they should, within ten years we'll have a base on the moon and maybe an observatory. Within twenty years, we'll have sent people to Mars. Now, of course, that didn't happen. No, because now, they. Hmm. They they disbanded the incredible organisation which led to the success of Apollo, and sacked Werner von Braun. Right, extraordinary. I mean, if 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 they really followed this up and and uh, gave Werner von Braun his uh, what he wanted to do, hmm. the situation on getting to Mars might have been entirely different. Hmm. And why do you think? 
Do you have any feel for why well, you think you that see, decision was made? First of all, the, the Americans got a bit fed up with, uh, you know, Apollo 11 and then 12 and 13, mm. well, 13 mm. was an hour escape, and then 14, 15, 16, they became a bit bored with that. Mm. And the other thing is, they never forgot that Werner von Braun was once, once her enemy. Mm. So what do you feel now about the, this talk, this talk of uh, revitalising missions to the moon? Of course, there's been... There are current and very recent successful missions, back, scientific yeah. missions back to the moon. Is that something that you think? I think that, that that's is a worthwhile way to do it. They will, mm. they, they will establish a base on the moon mm. and launch uh, uh, the probe to Mars from the moon. Yeah. yeah. What are the main reasons for setting out on this? You know, these sorts of missions. Do you feel? It's a very interesting point, isn't it? was a tremendous demonstration of human courage. Actually, scientifically, I, I've, I have more doubts than I had originally. Mm. So much has been accomplished by uh, probes, with, with, with on-man probes, as you know, mm. in uh, revealing the features of the solar system, that I very much doubt if um, man landing would have given me any enhancement. And, of course, there was always the trouble with the man landing about the uh, about the fact that the, the uh, they themselves would would poison the situation on Mars or whatever. Mm. One of the things that's often said about the Apollo missions was that it, it wasn't about um, uh, discovering another celestial body as much as it was about discovering the earth this whole idea that yeah. when these people they went out there and they could see the earth you could see you know you could you could stand on the moon and raise a yeah. raise a hand and your gloved thumb would would would, would cover every other human being other yeah, than the people the, the, the other point was the military aspect you see i mean the hawks in in the pentagon mm-hmm. they, they argued that um, any devastating attack by nuclear weapons on the Soviets would never take place if they had control of the moon, if, if America had control of the moon, because they would know that they would be similarly bombarded 24 hours later. So all this was very, very, very tense and mixed up. I believe you've met some of the Apollo astronauts. Did you meet Buzz Aldrin at one point? Yeah, Armstrong. And Armstrong. Armstrong several times. I remember I, we stayed in the same motel near Kennedy for Apollo 13. And we were in a long queue to pay for breakfast. We were next to one another. He, he became an ordinary man. <laughs> it's so, an extraordinary story. Yeah. Is it something that you ever like to have done? Would it have been something you'd, if you'd ever had the opportunity, would you have put on a spacesuit, got in one of those rockets, gone to the moon? I uh, might have done when I was young. But you see, when this became possible, uh, I was already more interested in being on Earth and seeing, observing what happened. Well, thank you, Sir Bernard, for, for coming along 
here and talking to us about Jodrell's involvement mm. in the race to the moon. That was uh, that was very nice of you. Thank you very much. It was a very interesting talk there. Thank you, Sir Bernard. And now we'll go straight to Ask an Astronomer. So with this being the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landings on the moon, we'll start with a question about the moon. Mark Grady writes to us and says, Telescopes work best without light interference, so would a scope on the dark side of the moon, with a transmitter facing us, work well? As the moon does not rotate, it seems like a perfect platform. Even if placed just over the polar edge, so long as a scope is on the dark side of the moon, and a cable laid to the transmitter on our side, it would be an unmanned system. Okay, so that's a lot of work to do, but I have wanted to know the answer for years. Can you finally settle this for me? Right, so um, so I guess the picture he's envisaging is a telescope, he's probably talking about an optical telescope, sitting on uh, the other side of the moon, from the side facing towards us, with a cable running round, and I think by transmitter he's talking about the, the, the bit of the telescope that sends the image back to us here on the Earth, so that's why there's a cable sort of running around the corner, if you like. I think the crucial thing here is the phrase dark side of the moon, um, because, I mean, I blame uh, Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore <laughs> et al. for this phrase uh, in Pink Floyd, because there is no dark side of the moon. There is a far side of the moon, so it's the far side of the moon from the Earth, but because the, because the moon goes round the Earth basically once a month, once every 28 days or so, then, uh, in fact, all sides of the moon do get lit at some point, just like all sides of the Earth do get lit at some point. At any given instant, effectively half the moon will be lit up, unless the Earth's shadow is being cast That's the side facing it. the sun. That's the side facing the sun, rather than the side facing the Earth. Uh, and at other times, you know, and the other side of it's going to be, going to be in the dark. But that just, just varies depending on where the moon is in its orbit around the Earth. If, if the sort of moon's... On the far side of the Earth from the Sun, then the side facing the Earth is pretty much fully illuminated. That's a full moon. And if the Earth's sort of roughly in between the Earth and the Sun, then uh, then in fact it looks dark to us. It's a new moon. But the far side is actually brightly lit. So there isn't, there isn't, you know. So in that sense, there isn't. You can't really do what you're suggesting. There's a slight, there's a slight chance that maybe what you could do is uh, uh, stick a telescope in a in a in a crater. Um, near one of the poles, um, mm. and you might get a bit more chance of having more dark more of the time mm. uh, in a crater. But uh, as we'll see with the next question, in fact, I think um, even even that's a, a bit of an issue. It's not it's not permanently dark. Right. Okay, moving on to our second moon-related question. This comes from Steve Whitty. He says, Every now and then you hear about how radar was used to map the surface of Titan, the pole of Mercury, or in this latest case that he talks about in his email, the south pole of the moon. Now, he mentions the Goldstone antenna in America, and he says it's north of the Earth's equator. So mm. how can it get a radar map of the mm. moon's south pole? Okay, so again, again, the, the, the sort of picture you've got to envisage in your head is the moon sort of sitting there with, with effectively, you think, one face locked towards the Earth, and therefore you only ever see that sort of side that's facing us. So how can you actually map the moon's south pole, or indeed north pole, because it's sort of round the bottom of the moon, if you like, from our point of view? Well, actually, it turns out that uh, you can see about 59% of the moon's surface. So not 50%, but 59%, a bit more than just the half that's facing towards us. Uh, and this effect is called libration. And there's several different um, effects that are combined to make this. It effectively looks like if you, if you sort of do an animation of the moon, you see it sort of wobbling so that, the, so that part of its face, you know, it wobbles bits. The, the North Pole comes towards us at one point, South Pole towards us at another point and round the sides as well. Um, for various different reasons, you can sort of half imagine as 
as the, as, as the moon is rising, we're sort of round the side of the Earth. We actually get to see round the side of the moon a bit more mm. than when the moon's directly overhead, if you like. And when the moon's setting, we get to see round the other side of the uh, of the moon. In this case, the effect is due to the tilt, the spin axis of the moon being tilted at 6.7 degrees to the orbital plane of the moon around the Earth. So just like um, the Earth's spin axis is tilted relative to its orbital plane about the sun, and that means sometimes the North Pole is tilted towards the sun, sometimes the South Pole tilted towards the sun, and that's what gives us the seasons. In the case of the moon, sometimes we can have the North Pole tilted towards us, sometimes the South Pole. So you can actually see the South Pole of the moon at different right. times in the moon's orbit. Okay, next question comes from Andrew Tizak. And he says he was wondering whether or not a planet's diameter is measured from the edge of its atmosphere. Or in other words, are Jupiter's and Earth's published diameters, in fact, not relative? So this is an interesting question. I think I've thought about this in the past. How do you define the edge of a gassy planet? It is an interesting question, actually. And, you know, it's not, I don't think it's one that often people think about, to be honest. Um, and yeah, the problem is that with the gas giants, then the atmospheres are clear, clearly extensive, you know, making up most of, most of the body of the planet. So where do you say this is the edge? Because you know, there's not any stop? rocky ground. Yeah. There's no rocky ground to sort of measure an edge to. So how do you decide when to stop? In fact, it turns out that the, the published diameters, typically for the gas giants, are measured to a point where the, the atmospheric pressure in the atmosphere of the gas giant is equal to one bar, which is about one uh, atmosphere on, on on the Earth. I mean, actually, it's just about one percent uh, different than what uh, an atmospheric pressure is at the you know at mm. the sea level here on the Earth. So basically, you can measure the pressure in the in the atmosphere of these gas giants, and you can decide where one bar is and use that as your reference point. Um, now, it turns out you might say, well, you know, what difference does it make? Might it, might it make a huge difference where you measure it? Well, as just as an example, uh, if you pick Jupiter. Um, and you say, okay, well, where's the difference between, say, what's the position, the distance from the center of Jupiter to the point where it's, the, the atmospheric pressure is one bar compared to where it's one millibar. So let's say a thousand times less. So in other words, you're higher up in the atmosphere, farther away from the center. Um, that's only a hundred kilometers higher. So it doesn't really make a lot of so difference. It doesn't make a lot of difference because Jupiter's 70 odd, 70 odd thousand kilometers in radius. So it's, you know, it's not a huge fractional change anyway, but it is a good question. Okay, thanks for that. And finally, a question from Brian Higby. He's writing in to ask, why hasn't the light from the early universe already passed us? He says, while he understands that the universe is 13-odd billion years old, and that the latest telescopes are expected to see back to very near to the Big Bang, what he doesn't understand is why this light has not already passed us, as even the expanding universe does not travel at the speed of light. In a similar vein, is the distant edge visible in all directions? He assumes that we're not at the centre of the universe, so if this were the case... Okay, so there's a few, um, I guess, misconceptions in this in this question that we ought to address. Really, um, we're talking about light that's set off from not long after the Big Bang. So, in fact, that light is now in the radio part of the spectrum. It's called the cosmic microwave background, and those radio waves um, set off originally as more like visible light waves, much shorter wavelength, um, about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, when the universe became transparent. Now, if you imagine sort of looking out in a given direction from the Earth and seeing these radio waves arriving from that direction, well, he's right. It's not like there's a, some massive coincidence that these waves are all arriving at us now mm -hmm. when we happen to be looking. There are waves that went past us before, earlier than now, and there are waves that are going to arrive tomorrow. Now, in fact, the waves that went past us yesterday 
arrive from a point, a different point in space than the waves that are going to arrive tomorrow. The waves that arrive tomorrow have travelled a bit farther and took a bit longer to get to us. And the reason is because, you know, you can't imagine that the Big Bang happened at an individual point. It's sort of a problem, really, with the term Big Bang. We're sort of thinking about it as some sort of explosion because we imagine that explosion happening at a point and expanding away from that point. And that's all, you know, that's all very confusing, to be honest, because really what you should think about is the Big Bang happening everywhere. So you can imagine light arriving from one bit of the universe and arriving at a certain time at us and then going past us and light arriving from a more slightly more distant part of the universe and then arriving a bit later at us and going past us. And that's happening. That light, that those, that cosmic microwave background is traveling in all directions all the time since the Big Bang. So I think that, in a sense, that answers that question. In terms of this business about seeing out to the, the distant um, edge of the universe, if you like, well, you know, this is a problem there in a sense. What's, what do we mean by edge of the universe here? In fact, we don't know whether the universe is infinite or not. Could be that the universe goes on forever. In that sense, there is no edge. And really, the only way of imagining how can the universe not be infinite is to think about the universe as being closed in on itself with some sort of special topology, for example, that means that in a sense, a bit like with the earth where we would, we could walk in a, in a given direction, I could set off now and start walking east, and oh, some time later, apart from getting a little bit wet, having some done some swimming and so on, I could arrive back at where, where we are now. Some time later, um, it might be that the universe has some sort of closed topology like that, where you could uh, basically travel in one direction or look in one direction, see yourself back around from the, from the other side, and we don't know actually whether the universe is like that or whether it's infinite so there is no edge in that sense that, that so we're certainly not at the center of any universe we're not at a special point in the universe we don't believe um and and, and so it's it's not a really a valid way to think about these things so just picking up on that point there inf- that's infinite in space mm. um because we're saying it had a finite mm. um, beginning so it's not mm. infinite, infinite in, time. in time. Yeah. So, so you know, yeah, in the sort of classic Big Bang cosmology, there would be a time zero from which the, you know, this, this expansion started that separate points within it, within the universe are expanding away from each other since that time zero. Of course, in, you know, that seriously discussed whether that classic simple Big Bang cosmology is, is right and whether in fact, you know, the expanding universe of which, which we see is just one of many expanding universes or big bangs if you like that form such as which may again get you around this problem of a, of a finite age the universe maybe it did go on for infinitely long in the past and infinitely long in the future <laughs> it's yet to be seen well thank you very much for answering those questions and if any of our listeners have any questions they would like to ask covering anything from the moon to cosmology to stars and galaxies then please submit your questions via the contact page on our website at www.jodcast.net thanks for that Stuart and Tim Okay, and now we're near the end of the show, so it's time for listener feedback. So, Neil, you've got the postcards. So we've got a postcard from Jason Hill, who gives a postcard of uh, Halifax Town, as it seems, or a sort of a church. And he uh, has let us know that William Herschel was actually the organist at the Halifax Town Church, which is quite an interesting uh, That's William Herschel, the discoverer of the planet Uranus. Yes. Or planet George, as he named it at the time, (laughs) after King George. Really? Yeah, it's a good job that we had that change to Uranus, because Planet George just sounds ridiculous. And our fellow Jogcaster, or Jogcast Junior, Jen, has been on a few travels. She's been to Como and Paris, and we've got a couple of uh, postcards here talking about um, her um, expedition to Como, learning about AGN, so active galactic nuclei. And apparently she had a lot more fun there than in Manchester. 
But um, she wasn't allowed to read that out, but don't say <laughs> I can't. And uh, we've got another one from Paris, of which she spent, um, I think it was a conference she went to there. I'm not fully sure, but um, apparently she's been working really hard and uh, learned a lot about um, radio x-ray and gamma ray astronomy, or data re- reduction. And she's looking forward to taking part in the July extra. Although uh, that was written quite a while ago, and she's not here, unfortunately. Okay, so nice to get postcards from Jen there. Yeah. Over in the forum, there was some discussion on the show notes for July 2009 show. Joda the Oak sent us some links to pictures on Flickr that were of noctilucent clouds, which are really high-altitude clouds and look quite nice at this time of year from very high northern latitudes. And there's quite a few pictures and some big panoramas as well, which are pretty fantastic to look at. And also on the forum, we had an update from Chris B, who was asking us for advice for a, a talk they were giving in a school about astronomy. And they've now given their talk and said it went really well and even overran by 10 minutes. Um, and everyone appeared to enjoy it. Well done, Crispy. We've also got some forum entries, or some feedback from uh, Philip Murphy, who informs us now that we're on pure Evoke Flow Radio. Thanks for that, Phil. Got an email from David Burden of the Live Jodcast, which is uh, up and coming on no- November the 21st. If you'd like to come to Jodcast Live, then please do let us know. We've only got space for 50 people, so the places are quite limited. First come, first served. Yep. And we've given you plenty of notice, November, the end of November, so hopefully you've got time to plan to um, turn up. That's a Saturday, in case anyone's wondering, and it'll be starting probably around um, early afternoon time. And we all plan to be there, so you'll be able to meet your uh, your favourite Jodcast presenter. Hopefully. Hopefully, yes. So there'll be Nick's sure. going to be back. Myself, Nick, Rattenbury, and Jen. She should be there as well. Maybe some of the other Jodcast juniors will be there as well. Yep, yeah, and we're hoping that we'll have Tim and Ian, and even Megan joining in, online from Australia. So that's a whole cast for your viewing pleasure. And of course we'll record that and that will be edited and go out as a as the December show. So but if you want to see the horror that is the live recording of the Jodcast, do come along. We'll also have a tour around the observatory as well. Yeah, we'll try and make it entertaining for you. At the very least anyway. So that brings us to the end of this special Apollo eleven anniversary edition of the Jodcast. That just leaves us to say thank you to Sir Bernard Lovell for letting us interview him. And until next time, jod on. Bye.